Hello, everybody, and welcome to 30 for Knowledge. I'm Danny. I'm George. And uh, it's been a hot minute. It's been a little while since we last recorded. and It has. And since you've heard our voices in your ears. we It's been incredibly busy September. Everyone I've spoken September. to... All of my friends have had quite a tough time recently, a lot of workload. I think it's people going back to yeah. the office and stuff. And yeah. It's just like, and me Not going me. back to school. Yeah. But it's just been like a lot it's going been, on. It's just been horrific. Training for a marathon. Training for a marathon. You are. You I are am. training for a marathon. This, by, by the time the, another episode comes out, I will have done a marathon, yeah, which is quite exciting. Which is how many miles again? 26.2. Dear God in heaven. I'm up to 23. So you can do 23 miles at the moment. Yeah, and I'm so I was three away from from finishing. Okay, so I'm, I'm quite I'm feeling quite confident. Nice. Apart from my snort, sore knee, but we will okay. get through it. <laughs> okay, it's not going to like blow out at like mile twenty one or something. Well, I keep imagining um, run fat boy run. <laughs> it's like that Simon Pegg film where he runs the marathon, but that he has oh, to run like twenty miles on like a really bad ankle. Allow. And I'm just like. Just That's going to channel me through my okay. sore knees. I will finish the marathon no matter how long it takes. You just have that film on, like, the audio version of the film just playing in your exactly. ear. <laughs> the novelisation of yeah. Fat Boy Run. <laughs> yeah, um, so George uh, has a topic this week. He's uh, another well-researched, very serious piece. I mean, that's I'm, you said that very early doors, so I really appreciate that. Thank okay. you so much. Oh, saying it's serious, or oh, as in saying it's well researched. <laughs> it's very well researched. Well, you told me how many pages of notes you had, and I was just thinking, okay, that's more than pretty much all of my research combined for the previous topic. So that's good. That I mean, it is good, and I've been I've been thinking about this topic. This topic's been in my mind for a long time. I started researching it in the summer on my summer holiday. And I finally get to talk about it. Yeah. And I'm desperate. I'm desperate to get all this knowledge out of my head and into your head. Okay. Okay. Into the head of all our listeners so that they can now be more knowledgeable about such things. Exactly. Um, are you ready, Danny? I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to take a quick sip and I'll be, I'm good to right. go. So we're abandoning the grey, humid confines of this crappy little island <laughs> called England. And we're heading to a beautiful but also humid tropical island... We're going to Jamaica, Dan. Going to Jamaica. Very exciting. I'm so excited. I'm wearing a pineapple shirt to get like that tropical vibe going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally culturally appropriate. I mean, I look like a just like an average white dude on holiday. <laughs> yeah. You look like a tourist in Jamaica, basically. I mean, you know, I'm I love the culture. Wanted to find out more. Actually, I chose this subject, which I'll talk about obviously in a moment. Um, after. That like Black Lives Matter really like picked up back in yeah. March, um, and I started reading uh, Natives by Carla, and there was just a very brief mention of the people we were going to speak about today, and I was like, oh, that's so interesting. I want to find out more. Really struggled to find out more mm-hmm. because it's not a very well known topic, and there's just just hints of it. Um, but I've managed to to found an amazing book, and I've tried to piece it all together. Okay, that, I, I think that's kind of the um our MO here at yeah. Search for Knowledge is kind of like taking lots of different bits of information, kind of distilling it down into a easy to digest one to two hour podcast. And what's great about today is it's about uh, a strong black woman. Mm-hmm. So let's get started. I will say that's also a nice change of pace from what most of our subjects have been in previous episodes. Successful like, white men. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Basically. Um, it is a nice change of pace, actually. Uh, today's story is about Queen Nanny, a.k.a. Grandy Nanny, a.k.a. Nanny of the Maroons, a.k.a. a pain up the Empire's backside, who was an incredibly uh, effective military strategist. 
sought-after spiritualist and overall leader and backbone of her people, the Winwood Maroons. Wow. That, yeah. That's a heavy CV right there. It is an incredible resume, isn't yeah. it? Um, and so Queen Nanny was also the first woman to be declared a national hero in Jamaica and appears on the Jamaican $500 note. Oh, damn. Yeah. So this is like... So she's well known, at least there. So even though I've never heard of this person. Absolutely. But... Uh, Queen Nanny is like a big part of Jamaican culture. Wow. Okay. Um, and like she's still talked about today, but I will talk about that briefly a bit later on. So between 1728 and 1740, Queen Nanny Lee led her people who were formerly enslaved Africans brought to the island in open rebellion against the British Empire. Ooh. Absolutely incredible. It's like all of these sentences that yeah. I like, made, <laughs> I'm just like, these are amazing. Open rebellion against the empire is always... Uh... It's a sentence that never fails. And, like, Britain is well known for having, you know, self-mocking humour, mm-hmm. if that's the right phrase. Yeah, we can. So I I'm, I'm love that, like, the British Empire got their fucking asses kicked. <laughs> um, this is awesome. Uh, so despite the British having superior numbers, more advanced firepower and a whole bloody empire behind mm-hmm. them, Queen Nanny and the Maroons managed to defeat the British and were given a pre-peace treaty entitling them to the rights to their land. Wow. And as I was, like, researching this and thinking about it, I always... And you'll find out why later, but, I, like, there has to be a comparison with 300. Mm-hmm. You know, like... the 300 Spartans yeah. versus the army of Persians, yeah. you know? So, I mean, topographical strategy will also come into play a little bit later as well. And this was for this was for Jamaica as a whole? Or was it kind of like the fight? Was the struggle was to basically free free Jamaica or was it kind of like a smaller struggle? It was a smaller struggle because it wasn't for the kind of, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't for the whole heart of Jamaica and, you know, drive the British into the sea and reclaim the island. It was more about their own rights as a people to to have their own land and not be under the constant threat of attack because for the British at the time, this was incredibly embarrassing um, that these formerly enslaved people were, Absolutely kicking their butts. Wouldn't be the last time, but yeah. Um, So today we're going to be looking at how they got there in the first place, uh, the mythology surrounding Queen Nanny and her people, and what strategies the Maroons used to defeat the most powerful world power at the time. Solid. So just to start us off, I want to acknowledge our source for today, which is Kate... uh, Oh, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce her name. Kate Golib. Golib? Golib. um, The mother of us all. I saw the title of the book on the mm. table and I was like, I was trying to read, I was trying to read it upside down because it was facing away from me. Yeah. And I was like, the month of us all. This not the month of us yeah, all. Yeah, I know. The <laughs> mother of yeah, us all. Yeah. My upside down reading is not that great. Which is also, again, such a cool it's title. It's a really cool name. Really cool title. Um, just to say before we start, a lot of Queen Nanny's history and that of the Maroons is based mainly on oral accounts mm-hmm. from both sides of the, of the fighting. Uh, there's some written documentation also. We're going to err today on the side of the Maroon accounts mm-hmm. because while both sides are biased, I'd rather not listen to the opinions of wealthy right, white racist landowners <laughs> and military men. And that these same people, these white planters and slave owners, would then turn even more profit when they went home with their histories and their memoirs, which yeah. basically like slated black people, every, 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 every person who wasn't them. white. Yeah, every person who wasn't white that they saw. So our cl- equivalent today would be the same people who think like a banana costs like nine dollars because they have like no sense of real life 
It's um, a banana job. It can cost how much? Ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fantastic Arrested <laughs> Development reference. Excellent. Daniel. I can't resist. I'm sorry. But like the same people. <laughs> Perfect, like Lucille, Lucille Bluth is perfect. But uh, I, but like you know, the same people are happy to have give people the minimum wage of like seven dollars, mm-hmm. knowing full well or not being aware. They, they, they yeah, just don't see what the problem have is. No idea what the issue is. Yeah. It's like you can't see the problem. It's like let's pay everyone seven dollars fifty. But banana costs nine dollars. Surely, yeah. like who who knows? Anyway, I think we should have a, a trigger warning at the start because there's a lot of suffering intrinsic to this story because obviously we're dealing with like enslaved people and. You know, a lot of people died. And there's a lot of sensitive history. There's a it's, lot of sensitive yeah. history. I'm gonna, I'm gonna st- struggle here to make sure that uh, the moments of levity don't add too much levity to a very <laughs> serious conversation. But we'll um, see how it goes. It is a very serious conversation, and um, you know, we're going to be making fun of the people who made the situation worse, mm-hmm. not making fun of you know. <laughs> Formerly enslaved people, absolutely. So let's take it back a little bit further to 1494 in the way, way back machine. Uh, Christopher Columbus happened upon Jamaica, not discovered. No, he failed at his task of trying to discover the correct place. Well, it's like, it's already there. Yeah. (laughs) People were already living there, but he happened upon it. And he's like, I found this. I found this. It's mine. Um, Yeah, basically, that's what Spain did. Uh, Which at the time... In 1494, it was uh, populated by the native people who were called uh, Arawaks. Okay. So the Arawak people were the natives of the island. Uh, Spain didn't begin settling on the island until 1509, uh, 15 years later, at the start of the 16th century. In 1509, there were approximately 60,000 Arawaks Mm -hmm. uh, living on the island. Okay. By 1655, so 146 years later... The approximate population was 60. Oh, Jesus. Well, like, they decimated the population and... The Spanish murdered 99.9% of the Arawak natives, meaning 0.1% of the original population survived the genocide. Any idea if this was like a... Do you have the information if this was just straight up, we're just going to murder the native people, or was it kind of like... You know how it was when they like brought disease or whatever, or just brought things that. I imagine, as with sorry, America. I imagine as with America, you know, attacking Native Americans. I imagine it's like a bit of both. Okay. Where that you know it was outright attacks and also white man diseases. Horrific either way, but yeah. dear lord, I mean, yeah, sixty thousand down to sixty. That's. 99.9% of the population yeah. is yeah, a lot. That's, that's a lot. Um, so the Spanish ruling the island, though, despite being very good at genocide, they were extremely mismanaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, their settlements were underdeveloped and underpopulated. They didn't care about Jamaica's like ecology or agricultural potential. And so the African enslaveds they brought with them, they were tasked with cattle herding and hunting wild boar. Why? Wait, I, I know you don't have the information for this, but I'm just going to put out the rhetorical question anyways. So they come to an island, discover it in massive quotation marks, yeah. bring people over, decimate it and then they're like we don't know what to do i think <laughs> i mean i was going to write this i was going to write this in my notes and i was just like this is my kind of interpretation or theory is that like you know all of these things was to mine and look for the natural oh, resources, resources of the okay, island right. so like you know people particularly this might be a bit tarring brush um <laughs> you know idea of like you know finding gold mm-hmm. um and El Dorado and, and, and trying yeah, to find those really important natural resources, yeah. but couldn't find them in Jamaica. And so they're just a bit like, oh. They're just like, well, whatever. We'll, we'll just, just grow. We, we, we've got this now. We'll just, we'll just badly else. grow food. Yeah. But them using the African enslaved to to 
cow herd and mm-hmm. hunt wild boar meant the enslaved people gained knowledge of the island's interior oh, okay. uh, and the layout and the best hunting grounds or knowledge which would prove very useful very later on okay when, uh, yeah when the uh, when the fighting starts <laughs> so on may 10th 1655 great britain yay yeah, go go britain go yay. tiny union jack flag <laughs> Um, put it down, put it down. Uh, invaded uh, the island with 38 ships and around 8,000 soldiers. And they made very quick work of the Spanish. It was... Oh, because they were at war at this point? Or... I mean, it's back in the... They were fighting everyone. Yeah, they were yeah. fighting everyone. You know, it's like, we'll have this. We're, yeah. we're going to take this island off you. Yeah. Um, the sun never sets on our empire. <laughs> exactly. This extends the sunset. <laughs> uh, they easily captured the island from like the mismanaged, mismanaged uh, Spaniards. Uh, while most of the Spanish fled to Cuba, naturally, the enslaved people fled to the interior of the island to escape death or recapture by the British. It's interesting to hear that they uh, fled to Cuba. I it's to... also nearby. Well, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it just makes sense. It wasn't like, hey, that looks like a Spanish kind of place, we should go there. <laughs> but was it more like, but did they already, again, you, maybe you don't have this information, but I wonder if they already had Cuba at that point as one of their Potentially. colonies. Or if it was like, shit, we need to get out of it. Let's go to Cuba. And then that's how Cuba... Or they were already friendly yeah. or they had something there already. But okay. they fled They fled to Cuba. Um, some Spanish remained on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there were some still like, Arawak people around as well. Um, but Goatley Brights, uh, the Africans, both free and slave, preferred living free in the mountains rather than leaving the island with the Spaniards and remaining slaves or descending into the towns and becoming slaves to new British masters. Yeah. So their options were... Stay and be re-enslaved by a new master or flee into the mountains yeah. and try and make it on your own. And given their experience on the island of, of the hunting grounds and they knowing the, yeah, the ecology better, they were, it's like, we're going to have a better chance yeah. fleeing into the mountains. Great choice. Makes sense. Any remaining Spaniards who decided to not go to Cuba uh, fled to the mountains too. And they led attacks on British settlements. But since their former enslaved had extensive knowledge... Uh, of the ecosystem, quote, they relied completely on their former slaves for guiding them along trails, for food, for developing their crops, for hunting, and also for staging invasions on the British settlements. A beautiful bit of power. How the tables have turned. You see, you see like like the former enslaving, like, well, well, well. (laughs) Look, he's kind of crawling back. And it's like, who's crawling now? Yeah, that must be an awkward conversation. Yeah, I can't even... I'm picturing it in my head, and it's probably a very inaccurate picture. Yeah. But it's a very poetically beautiful picture. Oh, brilliant. It's like, yes, got it back. Ha <laughs> <laughs> um, Now it's largely agreed that the word or the name Maroon came from the Spanish, and you lived in Madrid for a couple of years, so help me the Spanish pronunciation. Uh, the word Maroon came from the Spanish Cimarron? Cimarron? How's it spelled? C I M. A R R O N. Cimarron. Cimarron. It's probably C with a big th. Okay. Like Cimarron. Okay, like cool. I, that could be massively wrong. My Spanish is terrible, but we'll yeah. go with that for now. I mean, the Spanish are leaving the story very seriously. Okay, cool. well, it doesn't matter. Um, but that word means wild, fugitive, gone wild, yeah. or obviously carrying very derogatory implications, mm-hmm. uh, suggesting that the Maroons were just wild animals, you know, like unbranded. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the Maroons' rebellious activities emboldened more enslaved people from British settlements who either joined the fledgling, sorry, who joined the fledgling Maroons or went off to form their own communities 
own maroon communities elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And while the one we're focusing on today is one of the more famous ones, uh, there are like, there is a lot of oral history and and tales of other maroon communities on the islands as well. Not just the one we're talking about. Did you have any, uh, did it say in any of your research, like the approximate number of them at this point? I mean, I think there was quite a few, but there was two that were like the most notable. Right. That's why we say that Queen Nanny is the leader of the Windward Maroons, uh, who were based on the east side of the island. And the other most notable community would be the Leeward Maroons. Okay. Um, quote, the Windward Maroons on the eastern side of the island in the upper reaches of the Blue Mountains, which sounds like a place from Lord of the Rings. I which think it is a thing. From the Lonely Mountain? I think the... Uh, I thought the Blue Mountains was a thing. I don't know. It sounds cool. It sounds cool, I believe. Um the Wind Maroons on the eastern side of the island in the upper reaches of the Blue Mountains, the highest peaks of Jamaica. And then the Leeward Maroons were on the west side in an inhospitable group of small, steep mountains known as the Cockpit Country. So one, one Maroon community, this isn't one of the main ones, led by a man named Lubola, sought peace or a treaty with the British okay. at this time, which obviously pissed the other Maroons off <laughs> a lot. Uh, he actually assisted the British in raids uh, on the formerly enslaved and any Spanish people that were hanging around. Um, so he was a bit like Britain's, like, bit of a watchdog, mm-hmm. being, like, you know, just a bit of a task, being British and was, like, his taskmaster kind of thing. Um, but he was eventually ambushed, and he and his people were killed in an act of vengeance. These were the ones... The ones that were killed were the ones looking for peace? No, no. the the ones who were assisting the British. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, who and were raiding. So these were other Maroons. Okay. Um, their leader was Lebola. And uh, eventually he was ambushed by the Leeward Maroons, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, the Windward Maroons, in revenge. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, you're selling our people right back into slavery. Uh, so these, these same Maroons who ambushed and killed him would become like the epicentre of the Windward Maroons. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating that there's, because a lot of the times in history, this is slightly tangential, but I think it's fascinating because uh, in history, it's normally very one side versus one side. As in people will think that you'll have one side of like freedom fighters or whatever, and that it is perfectly um, solid throughout. As in every single person has the same thing, like we all have one goal. When yeah. in actuality, it's varying degrees of um, of uh, commitment to it. I'm so, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's dangerously simplifies. It, yeah history when people are very complicated animals yeah and you know lubola was he had a group of people to lead and he was probably trying to do the best by his people Mm. but unfortunately that meant stabbing other people in the back the thing is um i don't know if i mentioned it i've I've been i've been watching a hbo series john adams haven't mentioned it but yeah all about the second president of the united states and and it and it and it uh chronicles the whole lead up from the start of the of the uh, revolution against the British in America. Um, but in there, they had the same thing where it's like, even though um, uh, the British Empire was like attacking them, some US states were like, we need to find peace. We can't, we can't become independent because it was dangerous. Mm. Because they were like, because I think a lot of people forget just how powerful the British Empire was. They're like, it is suicide to go against the British Empire. It is better to work with them. So I could, I'm not going to say I understand what Lobola was talking about or anything yeah. like that, but I could see why different factions would be like this, like they control the world. Yeah. You need, you can't strike independence against a world power like that. So to use some horrible wordplay, 
history isn't black and white. No, I was trying so hard not to say black <laughs> and white. I was trying to say other things, but yeah, exactly. So. It's very grey. Yeah, it's And so everyone has their own motivations and mm. aspirations and, you know, things they want to protect. Yeah. So, no, it's so it's, it's interesting hearing it. In, so. uh, in John Adams, are, do people like break into dance and sing songs like in Hamilton? No, mm, it's it's very dry, but it's the it is the best dry show I've ever watched. Okay, it's just loads of old men talking about like rights and destiny and all that kind of stuff. Fully recommended. So if you're into grey history, if you if you're into the, into the greyest history possible, yeah, totally. Now it's unclear, or I couldn't find out when or how Queen Nanny arrived in Jamaica. There's we've got a little bit. Um, but there is some debate whether she was enslaved herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the point of view of Carla Gottlieb, the author of um, The Mother of Us All, that Queen Nanny was never a slave. Uh, she goes on to say that oral history relates that she was born of royal blood in Cape Coast, which is modern day Ghana, mm-hmm. and that she arrived in Jamaica as a person of consequence. Various legends related that she had a sister, Sikesu, and, and or five brothers, uh, Kweo, Kojo, Akompon, Kufi, and Johnny. Remembering that all of these sources can't be fully verified because no. it's all oral history. Yeah, there's nothing written down. It also bears remembering that the term brother or sister in this sense could also be metaphorical. Yeah. Metaphor- yeah. Uh, metaphorical. Not physically by blood and all that. Yeah, and a term of community and endearment. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, that's unclear. Like when you call your mum's friend auntie. Exactly. Um, the fact that Nanny was never a slave is an important part of her like mythos because for Jamaicans it builds on the legend that this Ashanti queen arrived to free her people from subjugation and slavery. However, quote, almost all versions of Nanny's story agree that she came from Ghana sometime in the late 17th century and that she did have some kind of power in her home country that she brought with her to Jamaica. And some people even believe that she put herself into slavery, like she she chose to do it in order to get to what we now call Jamaica, in mm-hmm. order to support and free uh, her other, like, Akan and Ashanti people from slavery. That would be a very bold strategy. How beast is that? that it, it, it's so unbelievable. I do almost have trouble believing it. Mm. As in, because to put yourself into slavery, I mean, there's no guarantee you're going to get out, right? Exactly. And so, there's no guarantee like, you're going to go where so you where, think, yeah. 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 Or it was like, you know, I'm going to go somewhere and, and help my people out. Yeah. And during her time as leader, Queen Nanny worked with different headmen of her maroons, uh, most notably uh, Queo. But these guys, like these headmen, like came and went. Mm-hmm. Nanny was the central figure that united the Windward maroons yeah. and other maroon communities as well. But the, the the communities, so the different groups of the maroons, they existed before she came onto the scene. They already existed. They already yeah. existed, and she just ended up being. Like kind of... And she came and became the leader of mm-hmm. the Windward Maroons. Um, and while the other, like the Leeward Maroons, they had like respect for her, but they had their separate leaders. Yeah. Queen Nanny was like specifically the Windward Maroons. Gotcha. Now, in like modern day, day Jamaica, she like still exists as this like national hero, mm-hmm. and she's like for all Jamaicans. Okay, but there are still people of like maroon descent in Jamaica, right. and so the country's not divided, but there's like. There's like there's like maroon Jamaicans and then there's non-maroon Jamaicans okay, as well. Okay, so like an like okay, yeah, yeah. Old, old school. I'm not gonna call it rivalries, but factionalism in terms of almost. Yeah, but na- Nanny's almost become like a figure of yeah. She's just like a figure of myth, mm. and we'll, we'll we'll get to it. So now we get to the best part. How did Queen Nanny and the Windward Maroons kick Britain's ass? <laughs> 
Um, and this is uh, this is the part I've been so excited to talk about. So, quote, oral history and other sources confirm that she was overseeing, she was the overseeing strategist for all the women maroon battles with the British, but that she never fought in any of the battles herself. One writer notes that Nanny's genius dominated the fighting strategies of the guerrillas and guerrilla warfare was a big part of their victory, yeah. which we'll, we'll get on to. Um, but that she didn't fight but blessed and directed the campaigns and that she schooled her soldiers in the use of the apeng, a cow horn, an instrument that served as a form of long-distance communication. At the start of that sentence, sentence, it sounded like a weapon, as in she trained them in the use of, uh, and then you said cow horn. Yeah. And I was like, wait, what? So this is so... It was a a means of communicating with each other. So long-distance communication. Absolutely. But it's it's like more complicated on that. Right. We'll get to it. Okay. Uh, so Queen Nanny and many of the women around her at the time were known as Obeya women. Obeya is a bit of a contentious term as it's more of a bit racist or an offensive term given to people who practice, I'm doing air quotes here, practice like the occult, occult sorry, right, or like okay. spirituality. Uh-huh. Um, it's not actually the name of the practice, but it's just like, oh, you do mm-hmm. like witchy things. Yeah. So you're an Obeya woman. But all of these things add to the myth and legends around Queen Nanny herself, and even at the time, which terrified the British. And Queen Nanny obviously was not a witch, but a very powerful, influential, incredibly clever woman. And remember, a lot of these formerly enslaved people um, were carried with them their Ashanti cultures or Akan cultures Mm -hmm. and practices and rituals from now modern-day Ghana. And that respect in the culture for their ancestors and the continuation of their culture through Nanny also led her to be like an incredibly important spiritual leader. Yeah. So she was born and raised in Ghana, was taught all this stuff in terms of uh, these elements of spirituality and then brought that to uh, Jamaica. And I mean, like, they, like all the people from, yeah, who so it's not from just Ghana. Us, yeah. Like it's a whole... And, you know, there's a lot of respect in that culture for, like, the head woman or, like, yeah. the queen. So, Very you know, matriarchal kind of Exactly. Thing. So her coming over and, you know, cementing this this spirituality and this culture, like, you know, garnered massive favour amongst her people. And so, yeah, she was seen as, you know, leader in all things. Strategy, uh, military prowess, and, yeah, and spirituality and, and just the upkeep of running these communities in the dense forest of the Blue Mountains. <laughs> Which was like a struggle. Like you got the British attacking you from one side, yeah. and it's like we have to eat, yeah, and we have to manage our people and like look after. I wonder them. how she. Where again? I don't, I don't expect to have the answer to all this again, just because there's so little written about it. But it's like I wonder at what point she got like the experience, like military strategy, or at least guerrilla warfare strategy. If like it's something she had experienced, or something she had been taught by you know someone else or if it's just something that just came naturally to her what's that what's that phrase where it's like you know some people have fat power thrust upon them oh uh well yeah so like kind of like rising to the occasion kind of yeah thing. and i think in, a lot of this was born out of necessity yeah if I mean, we don't like do they, this we're gonna die yeah they didn't have many options again They're, yeah so it, it might have it might have been a case of you know her being a natural leader kind of thing and then it's just growing from there absolutely and remembering that as far as oral history tells us she was a person of power and renown mm-hmm. in ghana anyway right before so, she got to the island yeah so so she had some sort of she experience had, she had some of it already then kind of capped some sort of like it. superiority and then like experience yeah. um quote for the maroons queen nanny is more than a mere leader or queen in keeping with the ashanti tradition she has become what is known as a first mother 
an ancestral queen who is seen as the mother of all her people. Hence the name. The name. The name. Good name. So let's start with the the cowbell, the apeng, the one you thought was a weapon. Yeah. It might as well have been. <laughs> it might as well have been. And that's how effectively it was used as like a piece of strategy. Mm-hmm. According to Goatly, the apeng was like, I keep saying her name in different ways every time I say it. <laughs> and I listened to her name pronounced on the internet. Goatleb, Goatleb, Scotleb, Scotleb. Okay, I believe you. According to Gottleb, the Apeng was like the African talking drum and was used to carry a vast amount of information through various sounds over long distances. So a horn blower could inform the others, for instance, about the direction of the approach of the British. Mm-hmm. This is through like tooting. Yeah. Tooting on a horn. But anyway, um, so a hornblower can inform the others, for instance, about the direction of the approach of the British, the number of people in the regiment... No way. ...and how they were armed, etc. Basically, they invented their own form of long-wave communication or language. How terrifying must it have been to be a British soldier heading into the jungle to go and fight the Maroons and you just hear yeah. all these, like, horns around you travelling further and further back, and it's just like... Oh, <laughs> terrifying, but great. And they were, I mean, clearly, I imagine the British clocked on after a while, but at first they would have had no clue. They were like, what? They, they must have been like, they're playing really terrible music. Or <laughs> exactly, just... yeah. It's like, terrible song, can't wait to kill all those people and stop that horn. <laughs> wait, why are all the soldiers dead? <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's happened here? Oh, it's so funny you say that. We'll get on to that. Um, I, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it, it blows my mind. And also remembering what, what white people's opinions were of black people at the time, they probably could not even fathom the yeah. idea that these people were organised. That they were strategising and yeah. doing it across long distances. Smug Britain yeah. with, like, all of their guns and, like, military prowess and empire, like, marching in, being like, no way, yeah. not a chance. And it's just like, they're just tooting their horns. Yeah. Five yeah. hours later, dead. Yes, all gone. Do not underestimate. <laughs> do not en- underestimate the power of communication. Um, so Queen Nanny, um, ever the master strategist, had sentinels on three hills, Abraham's Hill, Pumpkin Hill and Watch Hill. Quote, the Maroons were then able to prepare themselves for an attack six hours before the British arrived in their base of operations, which was called Moortown. The Maroons simply would not be surprised. Yeah, so, so they could just prep six hours ahead of time just not be where the British were going exactly I mean depending on you know how many how many uh, how big the regiment was what kind of weapons they had they'd be like right we need to go to another location Mm. hide out for a bit and then go back uh, like re regroup or it's like okay let's let's fight and the maroons all had knowledge about the landscape and you had to navigate it and the British are just walking in with their red coats because I think if I remember correctly there were times where Moortown was captured but like the maroons are gone yeah like they'd gone in but like oh they've left (laughs) And it's like, well, you know, back to the drawing board, um, I guess. Whatever the equivalent of a drawing board back was back then. <laughs> so I imagine, like, Daenerys' table in, like, Game of Thrones with, like, a huge map. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the Maroons could not be surprised by the British That's ever. sick. Never been ambushed. And because of this, the Maroons were able to plan ambushes as the British made their way up the narrow mountain paths leading to the Maroon villages. Mm-hmm. The Apeng also served to make the British believe that the Maroons' numbers were much greater than they were in reality. Right. So much so, in fact, that when the peace treaty was eventually signed in 19, uh, 1739, uh, the British side were shocked to find that the actual population of the Maroons 
was half of what they thought. <laughs> and you just imagine, like, this this horn, like, echoing off the mountains and, like, filling the forest. And it's like, there's, like, oh, must there's, be thousands of them. everywhere. And it's like, yeah, it was half of what they thought then, was actually there, which is incredible. And then ten guys showed up to sign a treaty. They were like, oh, I thought it was Oh, it's you. just you guys. <laughs> it's just you guys? Okay. Um... So Queen Nanny trained her people so effectively in the use of the Apeng that it was known as the chief instrument the Maroons had over the British. Wow. How amazing is that? That's, I mean, yeah, you, I mean, there's there's so many instances in history of just like guerrilla warfare, just like um, knowledge of the land and like better communication, being, a, being, being able to better mobilise because of that knowledge. Yeah. And being able to, being able to out like out power and Vietnam the, yeah I was, Vietnam was the was the example I was immediately thinking of yeah. like, like oh it's fine we've got like 10,000 soldiers which is like yeah but you don't know where you're going and you don't know where to go and you don't know how to navigate the land whatsoever and you're like walking around with ridiculously heavy yeah. gear in, in like a really like very difficult environment to yeah. be in I'm trying to remember I for years I remembered the, the, the exact like uh, guerrilla quote a uh, guerrilla warfare quote from like um from the Vietnam War. Nice. It, it was something like, when they attack, we retreat. When they persist, we hide. When they retreat, we persist. Uh, and when they um, hide, we stay or something. It, it, it was like, it was really, really a simplified, streamlined way of the guerrilla warfare mentality. But it's, yeah. So it, interesting. Yeah, so good. And uh, I mean, that could be that could be a good good uh, good opening line for the Instagram caption, maybe. Oh yeah, if we can find it. Uh, worth quickly mentioning about Pumpkin Hill because it's all about you know the the mythos and the mythology around Queen Nanny and her supposed mm-hmm. air quote whoosh, whoosh, magic powers. Um, Pumpkin Hill has its name because quote Queen Nanny, according to legend, grew supernatural pumpkins uh, from seeds that ancestor spirits gave her, uh, which she planted on this hill. Uh, Charles Ahrens, who's a major of the Moortown Maroons, um, he went around and lectured in America about the Maroons mm-hmm. to, to different universities. And he said um, in 1737, a couple of years before the treaty was signed, her people were near starving in the mountains. So she decided to surrender. She used the Epang to call up all the people to her. And then she heard a voice telling her to fight another year. She realised it was God talking to her. She was wearing an apron and in the pocket she found three pumpkin seeds. She planted the seeds on Pumpkin Hill and they grew in one week and they were big enough to feed the entire maroon population, according to legend. According to legend. But I imagine it comes from some sort of real story of how she somehow cleverly cleverly managed to procure some food and prevent starvation. Yeah. But, like, it's turned into this It's it's almost more about... um... The, the the willingness to go on and like being, yeah. being like despite everything despite all odds just keep going even though we're on the brink of starvation yeah. we're still going to win this thing uh, back to the war so in conjunction with the use of the Apeng the Maroon fighters were also well trained in the art of guerrilla warfare as we mentioned and camouflage mm. quote while the British came crashing through the forests and jungles dressed in heavy <laughs> black boots and bright red coats yeah. the Maroons were able to camouflage themselves as trees while they while moving through the forest, making very little noise. It sounds comical. It does, doesn't it? Just it's like, yes, we will now go through the woods in our red coats and our boots and hats, and that one guy with the little instrumental drum thing. <laughs> <You're> drummer boy. <laughs> you, you there, keep drumming whilst we... Which imagine if they were all, like, Cockney or, like, from, like, North London. <laughs> so I'll kill for a cup of tea. It's so what in the jungle, innit? Why are we wearing the red coats? It doesn't work. 
Oh my god! So just before I part of my research and getting this all into my head, I watched this really terrible BBC one minute thirty second like animation about Queen Nanny. Uh-huh. And there's a bit I don't know who the hell animated this thing or like drew these pictures, but it's talking about guerrilla warfare and how amazing they were at guerrilla warfare very briefly. But all of the maroons are dressed in like white linen suits, what? and so you see the red coats. And then you see these guys hiding behind trees in bright white clothes. And it's like, this is really confusing. <laughs> they weren't wearing all white. They were camouflaged. Ridiculous. Anyway, sort it out, BBC. Anyway, quote, uh, they had developed the art of camouflage to such an extent that a British soldier would come to a clearing and hang his coat on what he presumed to be a tree until that tree suddenly came to life and chopped his head off. <laughs> oh, this is so dumb. So, so good. Oh, man, it's so what in this forest? (laughs) Why is that tree looking at me? Um, And and, and again, like, every time they won against these regiments, these corps, they would, like, you know, loot the bodies. And so they're getting guns and they're getting ammunition and stuff to use in, like, future battles and stuff. They're, They're stocking up. Uh, and next, they used other aspects of the terrain to their advantage as well. And so they specifically constructed their towns with only one narrow mountain path, so 300, one narrow mountain path leading to them. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the British soldiers could only approach one at a time. Their numbers would count Sing- for nothing. Exactly. Single file. Oh, in their bright red coats. In their bright red coats. Whinging the entire... Through the Jamaican thing. jungle. It's so what... So what? So, quote, they would then kill the British one by one as they approached, never giving them a chance to attack as a group. I wonder what morale would have been like on the British Army side. Like, at what point were they like, this is insanity. Like, we keep going in one by one and just getting murdered. And uh, we'll talk about casualties towards the end, Mm -hmm. but, like, you'll be shocked. Oh, gosh. You'll be shocked. Um, I can't remember... After I've checked my notes, but it's great. Um, <laughs> the numbers are dead. Great. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Um, and this approach meant like a small group of maroons could inflict heavy damages mm-hmm. on a large core of British soldiers very easily yeah. and very quickly. Classic guerrilla. Classic guerrilla warfare. And like to sum up, uh, the British relied on greater numbers, vast resources of ammunition, and advanced military technology, including like the swivel gun, like you know, like proper handheld, what they call like Gatling guns. Oh, really? Well, like, swivel gun. Oh, what? So as in, it actually had like uh, automatic, well, not automatic, but it wasn't like a one-shot musket and reload. It was actually. I mean, the, the, the I mean, I think the general soldiers had, they had the muskets, that, but, but they, they also like, had these. You know, but they probably came on like a little like yeah. on on a car with like wheels. Yeah. So it's like it's very not handy. Yeah, it's very in um, the mountains. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. Pro- Probably not useful at all. So after years and years of fighting, in 1739, the British sought peace with the Maroon people. Interestingly, not all of the Maroons, particularly not the women, wanted to sign the, the peace treaty. Um, and it was it's worth mentioning that the peace treaty wasn't signed by Queen Nanny herself, oh. but in fact her headman at the time, Quayo. This allowed her to remain separate from the political ties between the Maroons and the British. Um in a way that helped maintain her position as this kind of infallible leader. Because later on, after Queen Nanny's time, there was another treaty 
and the British immediately went back on it and, and put the Maroons on a boat to Nova Scotia. But we're not talking about that one. Uh, that was, uh, that was my, I think, I can't think of the top of my head, I think that was about maybe 40 or 50 years later, right. like past Nanny's time. But uh, she, like, didn't trust them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Maroons thought that the British were disgusting liars. Yeah. Um, and it turned out to be true later on. But once this peace treaty, peace treaty was signed, there was a period of peace okay. between Queen Nanny, the Maroons, and the British. And Queen Nanny's spirit still endures to this day. Um, as I said, she appears on the Jamaican $500 note and people in Jamaica still reference her. Um, going back to the, the major of the Mortar Maroons, he says the spirit of Queen Nanny has never died and is still roaming the whole world where there is a black man or a black woman. And there is even a belief amongst some Jamaicans today that only Maroons can find the original site of Mortown, uh, the Windward Maroons' original home, and that anyone else, including non-Maroon Jamaicans, are in danger if they go and try and find it on their own without a maroon guide because the spirit of Queen Nanny protects, like, that sacred place. So they've proper gone in on, like, um, the mystical side of it and the spirit- spirituality side of it being, like, this place is legendary, you will not find it unless you are meant to find it. And yeah. That is pretty cool. But there's actually, there's real documented stories of people going over and trying to find... <laughs> Moortown, the original site, and getting terribly, terribly lost. <laughs> I mean, would it even still exist at this point? Like, would like how much of that would remain? What of actual Moortown? Yeah, I mean, not to take away from the legend or anything, but you know, like three hundred years later, I imagine it's not like a populated place anymore. No, right? it's yeah, it's it's, it's no longer because it's a difficult place to live. Yeah, so I'm, I and you know, depending on how they built it or whatever, maybe it's just been overtaken by. Jungle, yeah, gone back, to, gone back to nature. So I chose Queen Nanny as my subject today because, as, as Goatlib puts it very beautifully in her book at the end, um, what would be the impact on young black girls, for instance, being able to study at early age their own histories and the persona of Nanny? The impact of this kind of study on children's self-esteem would be truly amazing. A discussion of Queen Nanny and the Maroons in a classroom environment is a means of retrieving history, of reintegrating African resistance into the study of new world history. And Queen Nanny was one of the greatest freedom fighters of the New World, that well-placed in solid history of strong African queens. The study of her life might well change the lives of people living under paternalistic, racist, uh, classist and or gender-based oppression. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with any of that. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's a figure that I knew nothing about and I think no one knows very much no, about. No, I'd say, I mean, I mean, we can only speak from our, our London-based... Um, school system is that I did a bit more history than you did just because I did it at A level as well but I mean stereotypically our history is like King Henry VIII the Tudors um, and then you kind of like at least in history at A level it was like uh, learning about like the French Revolution and maybe the Vietnam War and I think at least from my memory there was only little bits about mm. um you know the the slave trade and yeah. like the years of that, and and you and, also and, and sorry to interrupt you. A lot of that only came up during Black History Month, yeah, once a year. But also, it's kind of like just basically the whole reason I'm saying this is to go back to your original point about kind of like lack of um, kind of key figures in this stuff. A lot of the time, it was almost focused on like abolitionists and um, oh, what was the name of them? Quakers. Like a lot of the time, oh, it was kind of William like, Wilberforce. All, you know, yeah, and so it was very rarely about like actual like enslaved people who rose up and you know um 
and kind of like fought for their own freedom. And it was, it was it, a lot of, at least from my memory, yeah. a lot of his, uh, of our history classes was about like, yeah, like Quakers or abolitionists uh, who weren't slaves. They were just people, you know, obviously they meant well and they, yeah. they you know, they, they devoted their lives to it, but we never really heard about these kinds of people, you know, who were enslaved and kind of like um, took their destiny in their own hands. And even with like, figures like Wilberforce, I don't think, maybe it's not William, could be, even with figures like Wilberforce, it's it's a very complicated, mm. grey history where, you know, we learn about him in school as the figure who stopped slavery, but yeah. it's far, far more it, complicated. It he wasn't a great man. Yeah, it, like, it, it, it paced over massive periods of time. Absolutely. And, and intention and all that kind of stuff. And even just hearing you mention those things, it's very... Europe centric, mm-hmm. World War One, World War Two. Yeah. I'm sure came up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, I mean, like you said, the Sartis. I've never heard of the Maroons. I've never no. heard of these uh, people. It was only like the rush of information again when Black Lives Matter like rose up again mm-hmm. in March that you know these these names and these ideas were you know shared and and really put out there for yeah. people to like you know to do their own research on. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I I promised you some number numbers at the you, you end. You told me I was I was going to hear one number, one particular set of numbers that would blow my mind. Uh, so during the entire decade of the 1730s, which is probably the time of the most intense fighting mm-hmm. between the Maroons and the British, only about a hundred Maroons were reported as being killed during the fighting. Okay. For the British, during the same period, represented the loss of thousands of lives. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Which is absolutely phenomenal. That's, that's pretty insane. And again, it goes back to, you know, it's not always about power. It's about, you know, being clever, mm. using the resources around it's you. It's not about pure numbers. Exactly. So how long was the, the conflict in total from... So it was it was on and off. So there, right. was, there was the first Maroon War and then there was a second Maroon oh, War. Okay. Um, and there's like periods of like peace in between. Um, is it peace or was it just... There's just no fighting happening right now. Probably, because... probably more that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like tolerance. Um, it's like we'll deal with those guys it's later. Like, it's like our other colony is now also rebelling, so we have to deal with them first, and then we'll come back to the Maroons. Yeah, and I kind of, I did want to keep this. I, I, I've told the story of Queen Nanny from. I tried to stick to a very historical, based in reality mm-hmm. perspective, apart from the, the pumpkin seed story. <laughs> uh, but there's a couple of other myths around Nanny that you know. One of them was, is quite cool, about how there was a thing called Nanny's Pot, which was, again, going back to her being seen as this obeyer woman who had, like, spiritual, uh, supernatural mm-hmm. powers. Um, so in, in legend, there was a, a, a pot where, again, the soldiers approached one by one, single file, and they would look into Nanny's Pot and buy some sort of magical hijinks and whatever was in the pot, the the British soldiers would fall into the pot and die. Wait, what, what? They would, like, stare into the pot, become mesmerised, fall into the pot and die. See, when you said pot, I was thinking, like, a soup pot or something. Yeah, me too. I mean, that that's... In the legend, that's kind of literally what it is. Like, a pot on the ground, huh. British soldier walks up to it and it's like, oh, what is this? I mean, he didn't get, like, an arrow to the back of his neck whilst looking at it and then he died. It's not like that, was it? So... <laughs> People uh, more clever than I, um, I, like in terms of like further research, it could have been Nanny's pot could have been a natural convergence of two rivers. Mm-hmm. So when two rivers meet, there's usually a lot of 
Okay, back to Nanny's pot before I talk about the two rivers. So the other thing about <laughs> Nanny's pot was that the water in the pot was always boiling, mm-hmm. uh, always bubbling, always boiling, but without any signs of fire, which was like part of the magic. Mm-hmm. And then like the British soldiers would die. So back to the rivers, researchers think now that it was actually like a natural formation where two rivers met mm-hmm. uh, in a certain part of the mountain and there was a hole there. And so if you looked into it, it looked like you know, this bubbling pot where it's just like these two rivers clashing against each other and mixing. So it was like constantly like frothing and bubbling. Um, And then like, it's a bit of a trap, a bit of a natural trap and people would fall in. British soldiers would fall in Ah. and and they'd be gone. They'd be dead, taken away by the river. That's terrifying. Yeah. But I mean, either way, it's quite terrifying. It's very terrifying. But but, but that kind of, that kind of keys into like, my childhood trauma of like falling into quicksand, or something, <laughs> which, is like... which I saw a meme about quicksand the other day, and it's like, why was it when we were kids we were terrified of quicksand? <laughs> Everything was quicksand, and now as an adult, when was the last time not you were once. faced by quicksand? Not once. <laughs> not, once. Uh, not once, but I know the next time I go traveling, if I go somewhere in a desert and I start seeing whatever the equivalent of quicksand is, I'm going to immediately brick it. <laughs> I'm going to run. I'm be like, it's like, oh god, I've been thinking about quicksand. I don't remember what I'm meant to do when I get quicksand. <laughs> do you stay still or do you panic? Do you move? Is there a stick? I don't know. Where's the snake? Where's the snake? Do, what does the snake do? Does it pull you I, out? I, I hold think, on to the back? I think I watched too much Indiana Jones where, oh, where, where the only option was to hold on to a snake because a snake wouldn't break. But didn't, didn't he like grab the snake thinking it was like a branch? Yeah. Or something? Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> uh, another, the the last legend I want you kind of wanted to talk about was... Um, uh, around Nanny was that, and again, all of these things just built up this image of her, not just for the Maroons, but mm. for the British as well, yeah. like being terrified. Um, and just like it, these, these, these people are like a force to be reckoned with. Um, another, another kind of myth surrounding Nanny was that she was able to catch bullets. Ooh, that's, and thinking about like, you know, bullets at the time is like, I suppose they're not as fast. I, I, I assume so. So, in certain, according to, to Kate Gottlieb, like there's certain cultures where, with enough focus and concentrating strict concentration and mastery, people are able to like catch bullets in their hands. God damn, which is cool. And so it's not not far away. It's, it's not, not it's not distanced enough from Nanny to be like no way. Yeah, it's like she came from one of those cultures. Yeah. So it's like if that's true, that's cool. It's not in. Sorry, I missed that. Could you say it again, please? So Siri is so interested in the podcast that he's asked me to repeat that last bit. Um, I seem to be having trouble hearing you. Sorry about that. Siri just derailed the show. Hey. I can't believe that just happened. Is that the first podcast ever be interrupted by an AI? I don't, I don't know if that helps or hinders us. But anyway, um, so oh, that's really friendly. What was I saying? <laughs> Damn you, Siri. Um don't talk to no, 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 no. Nanny was maybe able to catch bullets, which is awesome. But, you know, the British are being racist. And, and this is one of the reasons why I was maybe hesitant to talk about this is the, the legend was turned around to say that Queen Nanny caught the bullets with her behind, with her bottom. Oh, yeah. Uh, as as you were saying it, right before the bit about the bottom, I was starting to think, like, maybe, because... I'd kind of asked about, like, oh, what was British soldier morale like? And, like, yeah, I can imagine it being turned around at some point. You, like, you know when it's like, oh, you have an enemy and you can't, yeah. and you don't know anything about your enemy. Absolutely. And, you st- and, like, you know, people make up rumours or they'll make up stories or whatever, especially, you know, in, in older times. So, yeah, I could almost imagine, like, 
rumors would proliferate about how powerful yeah. your enemy could 100%. be. hundred percent. And oh, this is again like the over sexualization of black women as and, well. Yeah, that too. It's like so that okay, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this sentence because that's it's just it's just it's just a bit like it's a bit rubbish isn't it yeah it's It's just rubbish um but like you know i mean that's how that's how like ferocious her reputation was um she ordered the the deaths of like hundreds of like british soldiers and that while she never had a hand in the violence herself she was just like you know she led it she was she was architect of this whole strategy a hundred percent and that's the and that's the story of Queen Nanny. Dude. And they have a saying in Jamaica now that Nanny is always watching. Nanny is always watching. Mm. Okay, that's slightly ominous, but I guess that's the point. Yeah. Do we know what uh, what came of her later years? After 1740, when like the peace treaty was signed, mm. she kind of just you said she distanced herself. Kind from of all just of like yeah, just kind of vanishes. And yeah. I suppose I hope that she lived in peace and mm. amongst her people. Um, but that was kind of the head of the end of her leadership I, I suppose it's kind of like uh the she old... led them through the turbulent times mm. to to a point where they could prosper yeah no no totally i, I think it's kind of like the ultimate um may, maybe i'm reading too much into this but it kind of feels like that's kind of like the ultimate proof of um of a person and their intentions because so often throughout history you know you'd hear about uh people like leading a struggle and getting to the point of being successful and being liberated but then that person who was in power then kind of getting more power and kind of consolidating power and becoming, becoming a tyrant and yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. So it's kind of like um, a positive character in that they were like, once it's done, they're not looking for more power. They were just like looking for liberation and that was it. Yeah. And they didn't be like, okay, now I want to be president. Like it wasn't that. So, which I think is really cool. It is really cool. Yeah. And again, like all of her legends and, and, and the myths around people, they always have... One percent of it is true, at least. It comes from somewhere. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the biggest takeaway we could take from this is that she was a badass. Yeah. She beat Britain. Yeah. Like her and the Maroons beat England. I'm trying to I'm trying to picture where in the timeline this sits between the point where they managed to essentially defeat British imperialism. And then how the Earl of Sandwich ruined But I was trying to think, like, where in the timeline it sits, I'm trying to remember where, where other colonies went, because uh, America's long after this. Because yeah. Because it's like, st- that's 1750, 60 kind of thing where America is. Right. I'm trying to remember, where, like, what other colonies before or after this would have been kind of doing their own fight backs against the Empire. Oh, I imagine several. Yeah. Because I'm wondering, like, how close this was to being one of the first... Because I know that America came after, India came after. Haiti and... has a very storied history of rebellion as well. Yeah. And, and, and beating, like, powers. Yeah. I think it was the French. Or is it the French? I'm not sure. But Haiti has, like, a very storied... I think Haiti was a French colony, yeah. Yeah, Haiti has a very storied and amazing history mm. of, like, repelling, like, invaders and slavers. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm wondering how much, like, uh, the story of the Maroons would have travelled and they would have been like, oh, like, have you heard this colony fought back and gained their independence and how much that would have affected you know perception of the empire being like it's not infallible unfortunately i think the the saddest thing about that is maybe it didn't spread it did i don't think i don't think it would have spread very far because one it's embarrassing um for for this power this power the powers that be also they were the history makers as i mentioned earlier these white slavers owners military men were going home home. writing these histories 
about things that they saw and they're completely biased. Yeah, and it's it, completely <laughs> racist. The, the, their story is like, we went to Jamaica and nothing happened. The end. Yeah. yeah. Do not go. <laughs> You'll not find anything there, trust us. Yeah, and it's just I don't I don't think the story spread as far, which mm. is again why we don't know very much about it. Yeah. Um and that's also because they don't want us to know. Yeah. And 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 I guess the other side of it, maybe this is wrong, but Obviously, there's that whole second part of it where you talked about, you know, 40, 50 years later, the British reneging on their... Uh, on that, was the a, that was a separate treaty. A separate thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, liars but, and completely betrayed those but people. But it's like, um, but Jamaica, you know, it never really became like... It's not like they got independence. It's not like they fought with the British and then became like an industrial powerhouse. It's not like they then became a world power. So it's not like they could spread this knowledge and this... Uh, information and this story about them yeah. repelling the British, so they weren't then able to, you know, affect the wider world. Because it's it's doing the best you can with what you have, mm. and so this this treaty wasn't again, as we said earlier, wasn't for the whole of Jamaica and the Br- yeah, British it's leaves. Just... It's okay. We'll stop attacking you. You stop killing us, so we can do our thing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, part of you know the the implications or the uh, small print of the treaty, let's say, was basically. Anyone after the treaty, any like enslaved person after the treaty, it was by signing the peace treaty, they agreed to, the Maroons agreed to, if they found an escaped slave, oh, they, they, they would return they them. Return them. Oh, Jesus. That's, that's very bittersweet. It is. And, it, you know, history is very grey. Yeah. But that Maroon community and who, who, everyone who was already established mm-hmm. there, including Queen Nanny, was, was protected. Yeah. And then after that, it was, you know, this is our community now, uh, and you know this is our part of the island, and yeah, and there was there was uh, a bit of a compromise there, unfortunately, which is which is a bit rough. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, history isn't pretty. No, no. Wow, that was a lot of things I did not know. <laughs> I'm so glad, and that I now know. <laughs> um, I feel like <laughs> that is a good topic. It was really interesting, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad we. Uh, We've met, again, as you mentioned earlier, I love that we managed to shift the focus to someone who wasn't a, a self-made white man, as we have said in previous episodes. We've got a self-made, yeah. very strong African queen, Queen Nanny. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's good to balance these things out. And I hate, I hate, this is like a big bugbear for me on social media, when people call each other kings and queens. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes me cringe so much, like my king <laughs> disgusting but i feel like this is one of the only times where i'm like she's an african queen yeah. queen nanny lover a lot of social media makes me cringe so i i fully understand but uh danny are you still 30 for knowledge i am so 30 for knowledge not on this particular topic because that was a lot of knowledge nice and i'm no longer 30 for knowledge on that thing but in general yes 100 percent 30 for knowledge so good so we need to get on on it. And... Uh, I'm I'm feeling more thirty than I've ever done. Th- <laughs> uh, my knees are sore. <laughs> I, I like I'm currently that. wearing a knee brace. Yeah, I saw you putting on a knee brace before recording a podcast, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> I basically like pulled my jeans down in front of Danny to put his like knee brace on. I wasn't even thinking about what I was doing. I was just so focused on my knee. <laughs> I like how you left the room to change. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then you came back here and pulled your trousers down. I your was knees. like, I mean, it's like the first time they were going down all the way. The second time was like. I just need to go down a little bit oh man well yeah that was a, that was a i good. mean we i've started today exposing myself yeah. to you and now i've exposed you to knowledge you've spoken to so much knowledge okay <laughs> I, i'm gonna do my best next week in massive um 
massive quotation marks next week uh, to try and, uh, and 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 equate this amount of knowledge giving. And you're you're going. You're not saying anything. You're keeping this under wraps. I'm keeping it under you're wraps. Holding your cards no. close to your chest. Yeah, and and hoping that it'll be an, as interesting a subject for next week because this was this was very informative. And I'm just here like, man, I really need to do better. I feel like we need to make up our own language, like the <laughs> Apeng, the Apeng like war sounds. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I should say in response to that. Hot babe approaching. What What would be like? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would you do? Leave. Let's <laughs> get out of here. Yeah, we, need, we need to get. We, we need to get yeah, we should go home. Let's just go home and play games. Because um, when, when I try to think about like the sounds, I haven't heard. I haven't, don't know what a cow horn sounds like. But in my head, not that this sounds like that. But in my, I try to think of like sounds that could like depart some sort of meaning. I just think of like R two D two. So in my head, I'm just like. Beep, beep. <laughs> Put it up. Oh, I sound like um, I sound like Mooncake from Fire Space. And Gary just understands what he says. <laughs> what? <laughs> I see when you said when you first talked about the cow horns, and, and then and then throughout the whole explanation of it, I was like, mm, mm, I understand, I understand, and it's, it's a very important, very serious thing. But in my head, all I could think was Vuvuzelas. And then just like thousands of them just throughout an island. All these British fans walking for the rest. Oh, Brazil's playing. <laughs> Imagine it's like, Ma! man, there's a cow dying over there. Hey, you know, that sounds like a dying giraffe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, a giraffe's dying over there. <laughs> Where would have sorted them? A South Park um, movie reference again. What was that? What was oh, we that? had one in the Nine Circles of Hell. Oh, yeah. Okay. Little boy, you're going to hell. And I also want to correct my previous reference from um, Arrested Development. It's not. Job, it's Michael who she's talking to when she says how much a, how much could a banana cost? Ten dollars. <laughs> I'm just like getting so many like arrest development just, memories. Yeah, just something. <laughs> this is kind of magic. Um, There's always money in the banana stand, <laughs> and Nanny's always watching. Nanny's always watching. Uh, I think we should end it there. I think so. I've been George. Thank you for listening. I've been Danny. Thank you for listening. Thank you, George, for presenting such an incredible topic. And. Before we do the social media stuff, mm-hmm. um, we've got more than 10 listeners on the sandwich episode. Oh, sh- sugar. Sugar. Sugar A. Sugar um, We've got tea. to... So, yeah, we're going to be making those sandwiches at some point. Um, I've... Uh, on the menu for me is a banana and... Mayonnaise. Pickle? No, banana and... Yeah. Banana and mayonnaise, was it? And banana and mayonnaise, mayonnaise, peanut butter and pickle sandwich. Danny, what's on your I've menu got, card? I've got... I, I chose... What I think were arguably the better options, but the first one was uh, dark chocolate spread, and, which is nice on its own, and smoked salmon, <laughs> which is nice on its own. But I tell you what, just to balance out, because you you got the, the the raw end of the stick, just to make mine worse, I'm gonna toast the uh, dark the, the, the I'm gonna toast some toast, put some dark chocolate spread, and then get cold smoked salmon and put it on top of it, just to make it fully horrific. <laughs> We, we spoke about this off air and the Danny was talking about do I heat the sandwich or I don't mind it's like you know do you heat smoked salmon uh, I don't know I, probably not uh, and then the second one was the chow mein sandwich which I think in the grand scheme of things is pretty delicious I mean that's I, not really I'm bad. really scared I'm really scared about doing it because I have this feeling I'm going to take one bite and be like oh shh crap I really love this what <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh no! Now, now this is all I want. Just chow me in sandwiches for the rest of my life. Oh no! <laughs> this is it. This, this, is, this is my diet from now this on. Is, I bet you it's going to be like a perfect hangover cure. What um, chow mein sandwich? What type of chow mein do you think you're going to go for? Chicken, oh, beef, special. Traditionally, I know. I know. I don't even get. Chow, um, I was going to say I normally don't even get chow mein. I get like the the Singapore vermicelli. Yeah. Like, you the, can't like, do like that. the really thin noodles. Doesn't count. So I can't do that. So if I can get. I think just to make it really interesting, the char siu one. That's like the roast pork. Interesting. One. Oh, that sounds great. It sounds great. It sounds great if you just say roast pork on a sandwich, but it's not. It's like noodles and like bean sprouts. And bean sprouts. <laughs> and chilies and everything. Um, hit us up at 30 for knowledge on Instagram. 30 for knowledge at outlook.com. We need to come with a, with better handles for all this stuff. No, it's perfect. Ever. You just have to. It's, it's, just just, it's the name. Knowledge. It's just the name. If you if there if there's anything you'd like to talk to us about, uh, as I said, hit us up at 30 for knowledge outlook.com. If there's any corrections you'd like us to make, um, we haven't had any so far, which no, is no, great. Which means, and I know this means that everything we said is 100 percent accurate, accurate, and no one has anything to say to us because of that. That's the only reason. Because the research is so thorough, so thorough, so good, and so respectfully done. (laughs) (laughs) So respectfully done. It has been. It's been. It's it's been good. I didn't sing Bob Marley, but I might take us out with it. (laughs) Uh, And lastly, we are now available on Apple Podcasts. (gasps) That is exciting. Tell us about that, Danny. What does it mean? We are now available on Apple Podcasts. (laughs) Amazing. It means you don't have to listen to this on Spotify or SoundCloud or whatever. So okay. uh, if you want, you can listen to it on your favourite Apple podcast app. Although you'll be getting this knowledge, if you're getting this knowledge and you're hearing this right now, it means you're listening on Spotify already. So that's a thing. And I don't know how much... But you could change apps and give us another listen. Yeah, you could listen to us twice. Yeah. And that'll be fine. Uh, but yeah, we're available on Spotify, we're available on SoundCloud and we're available on Apple Podcasts. The Empire our media empire yeah. is now growing. So, um, yeah, that's the thing. All we need now is t-shirts and baseball caps and we're good. And some sort of guerrilla warfare strategy. And a sponsor. And we're good. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> if you want to donate to our Patreon, no, we don't have one of those. Um, the tone of this has gone massively off the rails. I know, what's happened? Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank Goodbye. you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.